Children are dismissed at this time to go to kids' class, so they're going to go out this door over here. Thank you, parents, for remembering to get them last night. I don't think anybody spent the night here. That is good. I know they didn't because my phone spent the night here. I forgot it, and I came back walking up thinking, I wonder if everybody's cleaning late last night, and they weren't, but at least there were no kids up here, so that was good. Thank you to all of you who've been providing food for us. Um, I, I, there's a conspiracy going on here. I think people decided if they give us enough food, maybe Brother Rich can't preach very long. And what you didn't realize is more calories, more energy, longer message. So, so I brought my timer up to remind me not to go long, okay? So that's what this is. That's why I forgot my phone last night. So if you see me walk out, my phone's still up here. If you don't mind reminding me, that would help me. All right, we're going to go to 2 Samuel 15 tonight. 2 Samuel 15. Pray for the kids in the school. We had some good response today, and I'm just praying that the Lord will do a, a, a Lord-like breakthrough, a God-like breakthrough in the kids' hearts. There's some very tender ones, and I want to see God do that all through everybody's heart. And then pray for uh, uh, tomorrow night to be exactly what the Lord wants, as, as uh, I'm praying, you know, what's the right message to end with. There's so many things I'd like to preach, and, uh, you know, I only have a couple days, so I pray I cooperate with God. I hope you have found just what you need thus far. Um, I want to say thank you to Benji today. Benji Nichols helped uh, me do a brake job today. We had all six of my wheels off, two brake lines broken, and uh, so he helped me do that. And then he welded a project for me on my truck that I had been praying about for months. So Benji was my answer to prayer today. And uh, I've known his mom and dad for a long time. So he said, yeah, I'm kind of crazy. I said, oh, I know your mom. You get it from her. I know, you know, so... <laughs> And I did tell Susan that. This is not like I have to do public confession. I talked to her this afternoon about that. Susan and I both like to do hiking and spontaneous things, and, you know, and then there's Dave. And uh, so, anyway, so I know the crazy came from Mom. All right, we're in 2 Samuel 15 tonight. For about eight straight years, we hosted as a family a uh, preacher's retreat in northern Alabama. I got the idea years ago, I'd go to some conference at a camp or somewhere like that, and I'd see preachers I hadn't seen in forever, and we'd say, oh, we need to talk, and we couldn't talk, because there's no time. You're going from session to session. And so I thought, somebody needs to start a retreat where preachers can just get together and fellowship, you know, and then the Lord put on my heart, why don't you do that? So we did, and we found a place in northern Alabama, and a couple of my pastor friends were in that area at the time, Dave Gamble and Shane Lewis had churches nearby, and near Decatur, Alabama. So we had this little golf retreat where we'd go, and it would be, you know, from 15 to 18 couples. Uh, We had businessmen that would sponsor it, so uh, pastors who often didn't have money to get away, they could come, and they and their wives would spend, I think it was like three days, two nights, unlimited golf, all the food. Ladies would do shopping outings and all, and it was it, was, it cost them about $300, $320 for everything because we had people that would sponsor it. So it was a really neat thing. I didn't preach for it. I would host it, and then I would have a pastor come in to preach to pastors. And so the daytime would be free. We guys would do, you know, golf and lunch. The ladies would go on a shopping outing or do games or whatever. Um, and then I remember twice I had Pastor Jim Shetler come. I mentioned he'd been my pastor in Pensacola. And I'm bringing, this mess, uh, bringing him up tonight because this message would not have happened if I had not heard him preach something at that retreat one year. I did not know this till later. Two of the pastors who came to the retreat, n- not knowing each other, had told their wives on the drive there, Hun, I am so discouraged. 
if God doesn't do something revolutionary, I am making plans to go home and tell the church that I'm resigning. Two men, I didn't know it, and they didn't know each other. They had said, I'm, I'm done. And uh, Brother Shetler preached two different messages during those couple of nights. Oh, we'd have the, the Calvary Quartet from Simpsonville, South Carolina. They'd come down and sing, and then, um, you know, Pastor Shetler would preach. These services would go an hour and a half because the only preaching we had. Night times was preaching. Day times was inter- interaction time, fun time. But I'll tell you, man, those services were powerful. And one time, Pastor uh, preached on Ruth. It was really good. But another night, it was a Jim Shetler message I'd never heard, and, and I think I asked last night, how many of you have ever heard Brother Shetler? Anybody here? Okay, so you know he's kind of excitable, right? Like, it was unbelievable, you know, that kind of... So he, this was a different Jim Shetler message. He said, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you. I had a guy come to me in my church. This is when I was in Pensacola. And he said, Pastor, Pastor, have you ever studied Ahithophel? He said, uh, Steve, is he in the Bible? He said, of course he's in the Bible, Pastor. He said, then I'm sure I have. I've read the whole Bible. He said, but I don't remember him. He said, Pastor, you need to study Ahithophel. So he said, I made a note to self, okay, study Ahithophel. Well, you know, being a pastor of a church where you're both in college ministry and church, there's a lot going on. And he said, I just, I hadn't had time to get around to it. So the layman came up to me a couple weeks later and said, Pastor, did you do a Hithophel? He said, nah, not yet, Steve. He said, I plan to get to it. He said, well, one night, kids had Christian school activity. My wife was at a ladies' meeting. I'm home by myself. And I thought, oh, Hithophel. So he said, I pulled down the uh, Strong's Concordance, and I started going through the Bible. And it was unbelievable. I'm reading things about this man. I just can't. I never saw this. And he walked us through that night a, a biographical sketch, and it was it was not your, I, I, I've heard the man preach a, a ton, I love him. It was not his typical homiletical masterpiece. It didn't have an outline. It was, just, it was just walking through a guy's life. But I will tell you something, it was transformative. And I say all that because I wouldn't be preaching on Ahithophel tonight if I had not heard it from him. And he would say, I wouldn't be preaching if a layman hadn't told me, you need to study this guy. Now, I have a title for the message, and I have an outline. I can't go without structure, Okay. But I don't want to give you the title yet. So if you want to draw a line at the top, I will give you a title. I will remember I told you this, okay? I'll give you a title. You can write down as a text, 2 Samuel 15 to 17. We're going to take highlighted sections out of those three chapters. 2 Samuel 15 to 17. We are going to do a, a tracing of the life of Ahithophel, and we're going to structure the message tonight in the way of questions. This is going to be a who, what you know, one kind of message. Okay, we're going to start with number one tonight. Who was Ahithophel? You may say, I don't know how to spell that name. You will in a minute, because you're going to see it in the Bible. Okay, so 2 Samuel 15, I'm going to start with verses 10 to 12. And we'll answer the question, who was, and you'll see how to spell it in a minute, Ahithophel, 2 Samuel 15. Now, I, I, I got to tell you this too. Tonight's message is going to take some brain work. And so we're like, oh, it's a Tuesday night. I'm tired. I know. But engage your mind tonight. Okay, this is going to be one of those, like a whodunit type message. So get your mind engaged. I hope your heart be engaged. Let me read from verse 10, 2 Samuel 15, 10. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then shall you say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called. They went in their simplicity. They knew not anything. And Absalom sent for 
Ahithophel. Now, I circled that name, okay, because I want to follow this name through the text that we're reading. Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. The conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. All right, so first question, who was Ahithophel? And we learn this, A, counselor to David. He was counselor to David. Now, let me give you a little background what's going on here. We are coming into the midst of a coup d'etat, a coup, a revolt against the government. You, you might remember David was the king, a man after God's own heart, but even a man after God's own heart had some royal problems, didn't he? And in his family, there was some turmoil. This son, Absalom, his firstborn, had become bitter against his father, resentful toward his dad. Um, without going into all the gory details, it's amazing. The Bible doesn't gloss over this stuff. Uh, he had a full-blood sister named Tamar. Tamar, Tamar. And Tamar and Absalom had a half-brother named Amnon. And Amnon fell lusting for Tamar. He wanted her as a bride. And uh, that was creating problems. And so Amnon had a diabolical friend who said, well, if you want her, just here's what you do. You pretend that you're sick and have her come and bring you a meal. And when she comes, you just force your way on her. You have your way with her. You talk about twisted. So Amnon raped Tamar, Tamar. And Absalom was beside himself. And he couldn't believe that dad didn't do anything about it. David took no action. So Absalom took action. He plotted very carefully. And within, I think it was a two-year period, he had Amnon killed. And then Absalom fled for his life because he was in on it. So he left Jerusalem. A long time had gone by. Years had gone by. And Joab, David's general, said, you know, are you going to bring back your son? And David realized, you know, he's, I need, he's family. I need to bring him back. So David summons. He brings Absalom back. And David hugs his son. He kisses his son. But you kind of get the idea reading the passage that it's rather perfunctory, you know, going through the motions. And Absalom moves back into Jerusalem, but he's not happy. Things aren't resolved. Sometimes you can go through the motions and you really haven't gotten anywhere. Hey, by the way, you can do that with God too, you know. So he's living back in town, and he sits at the king's, uh, the gate of the city. That's where governmental transactions occurred. And he sits as a judge. It's like his dad gave him a job. But the Bible says this, the people would come, and they'd complain, and he'd say, oh, that I were judge in Israel. Actually, self-appointed judge. Oh, that I were judge in Israel. Here's what I would do. And the Bible says this, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. So what you and I are reading is Absalom now has gained such a following that he's come to dethrone his father. He's come to take over, okay? So kind of catching up to speed, we're in the middle of it here. And one of the people Absalom tries to commandeer to his cause is this fellow named Ahithophel. And we're told he was counselor to David. So let me say that would be like in our day, presidents have cabinet members, okay? They pick, handpick their cabinet members. And cabinet members are advisors. Ahithophel was such a trusted counselor. He's a very personal friend of David, and his counsel was treated as if it was an oracle from God. That's the kind of clout that he had. All right, so he's counselor to David. Now, if you will, go down to the end of the chapter, pick up in verse 30, and we'll learn something else about Ahithophel. Who was Ahithophel? First of all, counselor to David. But then this, David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet, and he wept as he went up. He had his head covered. He went barefoot. 
And the, all the people that was with him covered every man his head. That's a sign of, of uh, grief. They went up weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel, again, I circled that one, is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And by the way, I, I pray that a lot when it comes to political officials. <laughs> a lot of them do a great job themselves. But Lord, just confound their, their counsel. Verse 32, it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshiped God, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him. Now, let me just pause for a minute. I know you're getting a lot of names here. And sometimes when it comes to the Bible, we get really lazy because, you know, first of all, they're not names like our neighbor's names. And so I sometimes see people like, oh, so many names. Look, the way historical novels are written, the way fiction is written nowadays, I've, I've read some of it. They'll start you with one group of people, and you'll go 10 pages into it. Then they'll jump to a completely different group of people, and they'll go 10 or 15 pages. Then they'll introduce a completely different subset of people, and they'll go, and then they'll bring them all together. And people love that stuff. They'll, they'll, those books become bestsellers. Don't get lazy with the Bible, okay? The details are important here. And so Hushai, who is this guy? Verse 32 says, He came to meet him with his coat rent, torn, earth upon his head, unto whom David said, if thou passest on with me, thou shalt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant hitherto, so will I now also be thy servant. Then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. Hast thou not here with thee Zadok and Abiathar the priest? Therefore it shall be that what things soever thou shalt hear out of the king's house, thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Behold, they have with them, there with them, their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, by them ye shall send to me everything that you can hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came to the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Okay, what else do we learn about Ahithophel here? Well, he's conspirator against David. Okay, so he was counselor to David, then he's conspirator against David. So he was trusted advisor, he became a turncoat adversary. Um, can you think of anybody in American history, who was renowned for military prowess and became a traitor to his country. Yeah, I was going to ask you, why don't people in America name their child Benedict? Who do you think of? Benedict Arnold. You know, why don't most Americans name their kids Judas? Who do you think of? Judas Iscariot. Why don't most Americans name their kid Ahithophel? Too many syllables. Uh, <laughs> most don't know him. But he would be in the same category as Judas... Or Benedict Arnold. He, he became a traitor. So David's fleeing the city. This guy Hushai is loyal to David. He comes out and he says, Your Highness, I'm going with you. David says, Look, Hushai, if you go with me, you're just another mouth to feed, somebody else to worry about. You really want to help me? I, I do, Your Highness. Go volunteer your services to Absalom. Your son? The traitor? Look, Hushai, I need ears in the palace. If you go offer your services to Absalom, you can listen what Ahithophel is telling him. Notice how much David regarded the recommendations, the counsel of Ahithophel. He said, you tell me anything you hear. In fact, you got the priests there. Tell them their boys will bring me word. So basically, this is espionage. This is spying. And this is bigger than silver balloons floating across the country, okay? And so here is, and that was a big deal probably, but this is, he says, I need ears in the palace. Man, people that tell you the Bible's not interesting have not spent much time reading it. So he says, all right, I need these boys in the palace to send me word. So, who was Ahithophel? Counselor to David, conspirator against David. Number two, then, 
what? We're going to answer the what now. What did Ahithophel advise? What did he advise? Let's go to chapter 16 now. And I want to pick up in verse 20. So let's jump ahead in the narrative. Verse 20 is down toward the end of that chapter. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give counsel among you what we shall do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into thy father's concubines, which he hath left to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house. Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. That doesn't mean it was holy counsel. This is wicked. But it had the authority as if God, had, God himself had spoken it. I mean, if, if Ahithophel advised it, everybody did it, because that's how proven he was. So what, what did he advise? Well, first of all, adultery with David's wives. Now, what are concubines? Concubines would be part of a harem. A king would have multiple wives. He wasn't supposed to. Deuteronomy 17 specifically forbade the king from having multiple wives. He was not to multiply wives. They all did it. Doesn't make it right. Your kids ever say to you, well, everybody's doing it. And you say, well, just because everybody's doing it, that doesn't make it right. If everybody jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? <laughs> it's amazing, all these kings that had multiple wives. God told them explicitly, don't do it. But David had multiple wives. Now, a primary wife like Bathsheba, she would have, you know, give birth to a child named Solomon. He would become heir to the throne. But they had secondary wives, too. They were legally part of the harem, but they didn't have any rights to the king's inheritance. Their, their children would not be heir to the throne. So that's these concubines. So Ahithophel is so twisted. He says, here's what you do. You get a tent and pitch it up on the veranda of the palace, and everybody will say, well, that's new up there. What's going on up there? And every night you go in to one of your father's wives, and you have a relationship. I mean, basically, that's like poke him in the eye, showing disdain for his father. You talk about twisted. So what did he advise? Well, first of all, adultery with David's wives. But now go to chapter 17, pick up the next verse in verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me now choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after David this night. I'll come upon him while he's weary and weak-handed. I'll make him afraid, and all the people that are with him shall flee, and I will smite the king only, and I will bring back all the people unto thee. The man whom thou seekest is as if all returned. In other words, you kill him, they'll all come back. So all the people shall be in peace. And the saying pleased Absalom well and all the elders of Israel. Okay, excuse me, what did he just advise? Not only adultery with David's wives, but assassination of David's life. Assassination of David's life. And he said, I'll do it. You give me 12,000 men to back me up and I will personally pursue David. I thought these guys were friends. Man, with friends like that, who needs ISIS? You think about this. He, what had happened? He's so turned on David. Okay, so we've looked at the who. We've looked at the what. There's another question, and that's how. Number three. How was Ahithophel brought down? How was Ahithophel... Oops, I dropped my mic there, sorry. How was Ahithophel brought down? Um, have you ever gotten in a situation where you think, man, things are getting so out of hand. What's going to stop this? It's kind of like... You know the term snowball effect? Any of you grow up up north? Okay. And snow, if you start rolling wet snow, it, it starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I grew up in New Jersey, and we'd roll snowmen. And, you know, it snowball effect. You push them down a hill, they start growing and growing and growing. This is a snowball effect. So what's happening is 
they got to be thinking, how do we stop this thing? Do you ever feel like in your country things are getting out of hand? <laughs> like a couple years ago, I started feeling that way. Maybe a long time ago. But, you know, things are really, you think, what's going to stop this? Okay, how was Ahithophel brought down? Well, let me show you this. We're going to go to chapter 17, verse 9. Jump down to verse 9. Uh, actually, let me back up. I need a little context. Go to verse uh, 7. Hushai said to Absalom, The counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. What? There must have been a collective <gasps> in the court, because nobody ever dared trump what Abs- uh, Ahithophel said. For, said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men. They be mighty men. They be chafed in their minds like a, as a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. Thy father is a man of war. He will not lodge with the people. Behold, he's now hid in some pit or in some other place. It'll come to pass that when some of them be overthrown at the first, whosoever heareth it will say, there's a slaughter among the people that follow Absalom. He also that is valiant, whose heart is as the heart of a lion, shall utterly melt. For all Israel knoweth thy father is a mighty man. They which be with him are valiant men. Therefore I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered unto thee, from Dan even to Beersheba, that's from north to south, as the sand that is by the sea for multitude, that thou go to battle in thine own person. So shall we come upon him in some place where he shall be found, will light upon him as dew falleth upon the ground. And of him and of all the men that are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he be gotten into a city, then shall all Israel bring ropes to that city, and we'll draw it into the river until there be not one small stone found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. Okay, how was he brought down? First of all, superior counsel. Superior counsel. This had never happened. No one had ever given counsel that surpassed what Ahithophel had advised. But what is Hushai doing here? He's trying to buy time. He realizes, oh man, i got to get word to David. So he takes a big risk. He says, ah, you know, the, the counsel of Ahithophel is not good at this time. And notice how diplomatic he was. He didn't say, that's a terrible idea. He says, it's not good at this time. Well, what he goes on to say, it wouldn't be good at any time. Because <laughs> he says, look, you underestimate your father. He's a man of war. He's not, he's not sleeping among the people. He's in some pit, some cave. He's separated, and if you attack, word will get out, and he'll escape. I mean, he knows the drill. And the men that are with him, these are not, you know, rookie soldiers. They are valiant men. These guys have lots of war experience. Don't underestimate your dad. No, you need to get the whole army, not just 12,000 men. You need to gather, because he knows it's going to take time. You need to get everybody, and you all need to go and go get them. Okay, so superior counsel. Only God could have given that. You know, the Bible says to pray for kings and for all that are in authority. Very honestly, I, I, I pray, Lord, I pray for so-and-so who's in office. If they won't repent, stop them. And I'll leave that to you how you stop them. But please stop them. Don't let them ruin our country. Confound their counsel. Gum up their plans. Let the house of cards collapse. That's how I pray a lot when I'm praying about government. Because I want you to remember, in this country, uh, we don't work for them. They work for us. Okay, government is of the people, by the people, for the people. Well, what do you do there? That's a monarchy. I mean, you're just, you get what you get. Hey, listen, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it where there's wherever he will. Yeah, that's Proverbs 21.1. That's a great verse to know when it comes to civics. And I want to tell you something. If you believe God's all-powerful, then you ought to be appealing to your all-powerful God to intervene in your affairs. 
And so they're praying, God, please stop the counsel of Ahithophel. God gives Hushai this great idea. So he's, he's brought down through superior counsel, but now jump down to the end of chapter 17, go to verse 22, toward the end. Then David arose and all the people that were with him. He passed over Jordan by morning light till there lacked not one of them that was not gone over Jordan. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city. He put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. What? How was he brought down? I, I wrote here self-termination, which is a clinical way of saying what? Suicide. Self-terminate. He, he ended it all. Let me pause here for a minute. It's in the text. I want to address this. I told the teenagers in, in chapel, I'm really burdened at the rampant rise of suicide in our culture. And it's not just kids out there. It's kids in our midst. And it's not just kids. It's some of you. I've had dear pastor friends who are extremely sound in their reasoning and solid in the word, who over the years have called and confided, Rich, I, it got so bad, I literally thought about taking my life. Now, I have not had those thoughts myself, but I will tell you something. I am totally empathetic with others who have, because I've gone through times where I thought, is it worth it? And I don't mean living, you know, like, but is the fight worth it? If you've thought that, you're not alone. That's why the Bible says bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. But I will tell you something. If you've had thoughts of self-destruction, let me encourage you with, with this thought. Those ideas are not coming from you. They are coming from the enemy of the soul. John 10.10 10 says, The thief cometh not but for steal and to kill and destroy. Oh, I know what you're going to say to me. Well, you probably wouldn't. But if you, if you were bold enough to say it to me, you'd say, No, Rich, you don't understand. It wasn't third person. I was thinking, I just need to end it. It's not worth it. I can't. Yeah, I know that. Satan knows how to get into your first person thoughts and twist your thinking. That's why we're told to bring into captivity every thought. You know how I know it's not coming from you? Ephesians 5.29 says, No man yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it. God, the biggest desire God put in you above the desire for food or sex or anything else, the biggest desire God put in you was self-preservation. I mean, you read Reader's Digest, you know, drama in real life. People will go to the nth degree to stay alive. God put it in the heart. When you're thinking about ending it all, that's not coming from God. So you've got to bring those thoughts into captivity. Well, Ahithophel, the man is so identified with his career, which is very typical of men, that once his career seems to have been over, and he has one defeat, he goes home and ends it all. Incredible. Okay, so we've looked at who, and we looked at what, and we've looked at how, but there is a burning question, and we've not addressed it. And what is the question? The why. Let's finish with why tonight. Number four, why was Ahithophel so hateful? Why was he so hateful? And this is, this is where this whole thing, to me, became like a whodunit. Brother Shetler said, I want, I want to go to chapter 23, so let's go there. And I remember him taking us there, and I'm still thinking, I have no idea where this is going. I, I remember reading the name of Hithophel in the Bible. I, I, I never connected the dots, to go back to the connect the dot analogy. I'd never put it all together, okay? Chapter 23 is a list of David's mighty men. Look at verse 8. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. And the, the mighty men were the special forces guys, okay? 
Navy SEALs, Army Rangers. These are the, these are the, the, the Delta Force. These are the elite fighters of the day. And it gives you a whole list of them from verse 8 down to verse 39. But go to verse 34. Just for sake of time, let's jump ahead. One of the men is Eliphalet, the son of Ahashbi, the son of the Maacathite. And then there's Eliam. And I circled this name. Here's why. Eliam, the son of, guess who? Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Oh, Gilanite. Remember, where was Ahithophel from? Gilo, same guy. So we learned something else about Ahithophel. His son was one of David's special forces. He's one of his elite fighters. Eliam. Interesting. Now, Brother Shetler said, now I want to back up. I want to go back in history. Go back to chapter 11. Okay, that predates anything we've read up to this point. So go back to chapter 11. And this is where you're kind of going to connect some more dots. Chapter 11. And I'm going to pick up in verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. It came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab, that's his general, and his servants with him and all Israel. They destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. Okay, so it's the time when kings go forth to battle, and where's David? Back in the capital city. You, you know, you don't lead from the back. We don't know all the reasons why David tarried. It, I mean, it might not have been malicious. It might just have been a soft choice, but I will tell you this, soft choices can give birth to hard consequences. So he's at Jerusalem, verse 2, it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed, walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. The woman was very beautiful to look upon. Well, let's pause here for a minute. You all know where this is going. What, what should he have done? I'm assuming it's a moonlit night, you know, because they didn't have great lighting like we have with LED lighting. So I'm assuming it's a moonlit night because he sees a woman, she's washing herself, he's watching. Now, he could have turned around and gone in. Flee also youthful lust. I know that verse is not in the Bible yet at that time, but thou shalt not commit adultery is in there. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. That's in there. So David, um, Proverbs, you know, my son, let thine eyes look straight before thee. That's in there. And so he, well, no, that was Solomon. Sorry, not there yet. Okay, jumping ahead. But he's got plenty of scripture to know. Don't do this, but he, but he doesn't. He does what James says. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, and when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. James 1, 13 to 16. That wasn't in David's Bible, but it's in your Bible. That hadn't been written yet, but you can see why. He did know, like um, Moses wrote, be sure your sin will find you out. So you keep reading here, you know what happens. Verse 3, David sent and inquired after the woman. They said, is not this Bathsheba? Keep reading. The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers, he took her, he, she came into him, he lay with her, she was purified from her uncleanness. She returned to her house, the woman conceived and told David, sent and told David, I am with child. Okay, you know where this goes from here. Wait a minute. Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam. Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. That means Bathsheba is the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Any of you old enough to remember Paul Harvey? Stand by for news. And Paul Harvey on the radio had a tremendous spot called The Rest of the Story. 
And he would tell these elaborate stories using only first names or names that were not commonly identified with the famous person that he was getting around to telling you about. And he'd tell these elaborate stories, and at the end, he'd say, and he became known as, and then he'd say, and now you know the rest of the story. When we got to this place in Scripture, I felt like I'd been on this roller coaster ride, and all of a sudden, it all comes clear. No wonder Ahithophel turned on David. Okay, the title I promised you The Bonds of Bitterness. The Bonds of Bitterness. My pastor used to tell us hurt people hurt people. Have you heard that before, too? Hurt people hurt people. Now, it is interesting. You you know, David has Uriah come home. Hey, give me a report. Great. Go home, take a furlough, be with your wife. He doesn't do it. Gets him drunk. He still won't go home. Sends him to the hottest part of the battle. Tells Joab, withdraw the men. Joab must be thinking, I don't know what Uriah did, but this is a death sentence. When they come back to camp, they find out, Bathsheba's expecting, yeah, well, I sent Uriah home. Yeah, but he never went home. Word spreads. And, and Uriah, I'm sorry, Joab is the king's general. Who else would be in the inner circle? Ahithophel. And they begin to compare their stories. And Ahithophel knows what's happened. You know what's the amazing thing to me? You, you don't see any evidence of a lion turning against David. I know you can't make an argument from silence, but you'd think if he turned on David, there'd be some mention of it. Evidently, one man deals with his bitterness, the other is destroyed by his bitterness. Let me give you a couple of scriptures to jot down. Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Okay, here's a statement. Bitterness will defile you, grace will deliver you. Bitterness will defile you, grace will deliver you. You know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny was um, taking a, a swim in the uh, Chesapeake Bay when she was a teenager, dove into the bay off a dock, snapped her neck, became paralyzed from the neck down. She's the one that paints using a, a paintbrush in her te- teeth and amazing painting. The thing that's most amazing about the woman, I've heard her on Christian radio a number of times, how, how joyful she is. She's, she's a quadriplegic and her joy and she said, you know, sometimes people would ask her, Johnny, did you ever get bitter at God for what he let happen to you? She said, you know, being bitter is like drinking poison yourself, expecting the other person to die. Well, that's quite an analogy. Being bitter is like drinking poison yourself, expecting the other person to die. Like you saying to somebody, take that, and you blow your brains out. <sighs> You're the one who dies. Interesting. Let me give you another scripture. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You say, I, I just can't do that. He tells you, let all bitterness, wrath, clamor, evil speaking be put away. I want to read you an excerpt called, I'm Still Learning to Forgive. Corey Ten Boom. You know that name, don't you? 
It was in a church in Munich where I saw him when I was speaking in 1947. A balding, heavy-set man with a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next moment, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came rushing back with a flood. The harsh room with its overhead lights, a pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, her ribs sharp beneath a parchment of skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, the concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I'd come face to face with one of my captors. My blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I, I'd like to hear it from your lips. Fräulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It couldn't have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that you forgive those who've injured you. If you do not forgive men your trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still, I stood there, coldness clutching my heart. But, this is good, but forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You simply must supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this, this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did that day. You say, well... She must be something special, because I'll tell you what, I could never do that. And you're right, you could never do it. Nor could she. But I can do all things how? Through Christ, which strengthens me. The Lord is my strength. Philippians 4.13. Without me, he said, you can do nothing, John 15.5. You know, why do we become bitter? We become bitter for four reasons that I know of. One is run, wrong actions done against me. You know, like Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. I, I'm amazed he never got bitter. One is wrong actions done by me. Romans chapter 1 talks about the slide to becoming morally reprobate. Because they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge, neither were thankful. They became vain in their imagination. They worshiped and served the creature. They burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly. Um, abandoning the, the desire of women, and it says eventually God gave them over to a reprobate mind. You know why many people reject the notion of God? Because if there's a God, they've got to deal with them. 
So wrong actions done by me make me bitter. And then there's wrong thinking concerning difficulty. Remember Naomi, after she'd gone to Moab when there was time of famine and she lost her husband and then her two sons, and then she tells Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, just go home to your people. And, and she has the audacity to say, and to your gods. Orpah goes home, but Ruth says, no, where thou dwellest, I will dwell. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God, my God. Naomi's on her way back home, and they say, it's Naomi, which means pleasantness. She said, don't call me that. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter, for the Almighty hath dealt bitterly against me. See, wrong thinking concerning difficulty. They later go on to say, your daughter-in-law is better for you than ten sons. And she has a change of perspective because the goodness of God leadeth to repentance. So the wrong actions done against me, wrong actions done by me, wrong thinking concerning difficulty. And then number four is wrong thinking concerning deity, wrong thinking concerning God. Well, if God's good, how did he do this? I want to finish the message in Psalm 55 tonight. Would you go to that Psalm, Psalm 55? I'm going to walk to the piano, and there's a reason I'm making this trip here. I don't play, so don't expect a special. Um, I know sometimes a preacher preaches on bitterness, and you might think, yeah, easy for you guys to preach. You, you get to do stuff you like every day. You work with people that like you, people that think you're heroic, you know. In fact, you don't even have people cuss at you where you work, and that is true. I have never had anybody in ministry cuss at me. You might think, easy for you to preach, don't be bitter. Let me, let me just be transparent. In the year 2000, the very weekend of the hanging Chad election, or the weekend leading up to the hanging Chad election, Bush v. Gore, remember? Our pastor's wife of 22 years, our pastor had been at Eagle Heights Baptist, my home church, for 22 years. Our pastor's wife took a revolver, shot and killed their 24-year-old daughter, turned the pistol on herself, and took her life. Whew. There was a whole story behind it. And I will tell you, that was not typical of her. That was not, you might think, she must have been a fraud. No, it just did not fit at all. I wish I had time to go into all of it. I don't right now. But what do you do when your pastor's wife and daughter are dead and the pastor's wife is the perpetrator? I'll, I'll tell you how we handled that. Uh, three years later, my wife gave stillbirth to a little baby boy, the only boy we'd have, 17 weeks into term on Easter Sunday. Um, five years after that, my dad died suddenly, unexpectedly at age 65. The very week my wife and I were going to go on a cruise to Alaska for our 15th anniversary, we're instead canceling that to go to New Jersey where my parents were born and raised and I was raised, and I'm doing a funeral for my dad. Four years later, 2012, my wife's youngest sister, Sonia, 34 years old, dies of breast cancer. I'm not telling you this to make you feel sorry for me. I'm, I'm telling you this... Preaching is not done in a vacuum. We all have our own life experiences. I want to tell you this. Angela and I will tell you this. We love the Lord more than we ever have. We've loved him all the way through these things. Do we understand? No, we don't understand. But we know this with rock-solid conviction. God is good. No matter what happens, God is good. And people were calling... And they were asking me, you know, how are you doing? After my pastor's wife had shot and killed their daughter and then taken her own life. How are you doing? What do you say? Oh, we're fine. That's, no, we're not fine. Oh, we've given up on God. I'm done with the ministry. Well, no, that wasn't true. I remember saying this. Well, 
I feel numb. My mind is racing a million directions, but I can tell you this. We are sustained. Look at Psalm 55, 22. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. I took piano lessons for three years when I was a kid. I could never learn to read music. I love music. I would love to have been able to play the piano. I was, a, I was an A student in school. I could not figure out how to read music. Bless you who can. So my poor parents, three years of piano lessons, struggling through my recitals. And uh, now I do know this. I know this is middle C right here. And I'm sure you're impressed after three years, right? And this pedal to the far right is called the sustain pedal. I want you to listen to this. This is middle C. This is middle C with a sustain pedal. Middle C. Middle C with the sustain pedal. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall what? He'll do that. He'll sustain. I can tell you this. You're going to go through times of trial, folks. We're all going to go. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. What Satan is wanting to do is destroy your faith. And you know how he'll do that? Remember, Jesus told Peter, look, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. You is plural in our King James. And then he says, but I've prayed for thee. That's singular. So he said, Peter, it's not just you. He wants to destroy the whole company of you, all you disciples. But I've prayed for thee, Peter, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Thank God he's praying for you too. He ever lives to make intercession for us. But I want you to notice something. I had not caught, I knew the verse here, Psalm 55, 22. Go back to verse 12 for a minute. What's the context here? It was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, mine equal, my guide, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in company. Would you like to take a guess who that may refer to? Many believe it points directly to Ahithophel. And then he says this, 21, the words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, but they were drawn swords. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. You know, much of what David went through was self-inflicted. His sin with Bathsheba started this whole thing. But even after self-imposed circumstances, he didn't lose his confidence in God. Satan's got you in the crosshairs. He wants to destroy you. And one of his favorite poisons on the shelf is bitterness. You say, I could never forgive. It's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. It's a lie. You can. Because God can. Don't be bound with bitterness. You shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. Would you bow your head tonight? You listen really well. I, I don't want to do a long invitation because I know there are people in the nursery and we need to go. But we need an invitation. Let me just ask you this tonight. How many of you as we're seated here would say, man, I don't know who else might have needed it, but did I need this tonight? Would you hold up your hand? Would you hold up your hand? Amen. Okay. How many of you would say, you know, I, I, I'm not in a circumstance right now that I need this, but I will tell you this. This is medicine I need to put on the shelf. I, I need to keep this bottle handy. 
I'm going to have to go to that reservoir. Anybody see something coming that you say, I am going to need this reminder? Would you make preparation to say, Lord, help me to remember these truths? Let's stand together. And I'm going to ask our pianist to play. And I'll tell you what, kneeling right where you are, coming to the front, uh, you know, make, just find a spot. And, and bow before God and say, Lord, I can't, but you can. As the pianist plays, would you respond tonight? Maybe the person you're bitter against is God. You might as well tell him he knows. He knows. You can't hide it from him. Maybe you're saying, Lord, my thinking has been clouded. I don't know if I'm bitter or not, but it's just like every time I think of that person, it just it puts that look on my face. Yeah, you know what it, what it looks like when you taste something bitter? What does it do to your expression? Pursed lips, drawn corners of the mouth. Is there somebody you think of them that just does that to your stomach? Maybe you need to just turn right there at your pew tonight or your seat and just drop to your knees and say, Lord, I please search me. I don't, I'm, I'm so confused. Maybe I am bitter. I don't know. Lord, you're the great physician. Would you show me what's wrong? Would you do surgery on me? Would you set me free? Help me, Lord. I'll say this as we close. If you've never been born again, the scripture's clear. Look unto me and be saved. What does that mean? Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried and rose again. He did that because he, the guiltless one, died to pay for you, the guilty one. He took your sins on him, paid the price in full, and now extends to you his righteousness. How many of you can say, thank God, he saved me, he delivered me. Would you hold your hand up? You say, I know him. Thank God I know him. Amen. Is there anybody you'd say, pray for me? I don't know if I'd go to heaven, and I'm concerned. I don't know if I've ever been forgiven, and I want to be. Anybody like that? That's your need tonight? Would you let me know? I'd love to talk to you, sit down with you, show you from the Bible how to be saved. Folks are praying. I'm going to swap with Pastor. He'll dismiss us. Thank you for your good attention. I'll tell you, this is one of those messages that I hope you don't just easily dismiss. I told you I wouldn't have preached it if I hadn't heard it from somebody else. But it was transformative. And I hope it will be for you too. Pastor, thank you, brother. Thank you, Brother Tozier. What a powerful message. Pastor Rick made a statement in the very first service of this revival. He said, every service is going to get better. And boy, have they done that. I can't wait till tomorrow night. Can't wait to hear what God has for us. Thank you. Every message has been wonderful. And I think, how can you top that? You topped them, brother. I know you get it from the Lord and give him the credit and I do the same. God used you with a powerful message. And I believe there's someone here tonight needed that. Don't allow bitterness to destroy you. It will. Allow the grace of God to give you the ability, the strength to do what God has done for you, to forgive. Thank you for coming tonight. And uh, please go back and get your children in the nursery and children's church. Remember we have men at the back doors with an offering plate for an offering. Love offering Brother Tozier for tonight and also tomorrow night also. So keep that in mind. God bless you. You are dismissed.